infobesity, infoxication. Two words that were actually coined somewhere in the 60s or 70s designed to describe what people referred to already then as information overload. Keep in mind, this is at a time where we didn't even have the personal computer. We did not have digital handheld devices, but the world was waking up to the reality that information is coming at us faster and faster than ever before. In rural 15th century France, the first mechanical clock was invented to measure time in the increment of abs so, so that a monk would know how long they were supposed to pray. By the time the Industrial Revolution came along, time was now being measured in seconds, a tiny increment of time representative of the mass production taking place and how fast things were getting cranked out. And here we are today in the 21st century, now measuring time and processing speeds by the nanosecond. It's getting faster and faster. What's coming at you is coming more and more and it's quicker and quicker and it's taking its toll on us, the average American today, it's believed, hears somewhere between 20 and 30,000 words a day. We can speak at a pace of approximately 125 to 175 words a minute, and we listen at approximately 450 words per minute. Never mind all the images that are coming at us by the thousands on top of all of these words. One can hardly take all of it in. According to Wikipedia, information overload occurs when the amount of input to a system exceeds its capacity. Decision makers have fairly limited processing capacity. Consequently, when information overload does occur, it is likely a reduction in decision quality will occur. After all the reading and prep that I had done for this, I had information overload, and so I chose Wikipedia as my source last night. Dort students would never do that on a paper. And as a result of this, something so real that is now a focus of study in different places of decision fatigue, that so much is coming at us that it's almost overwhelming, the decision fatigue is a real thing. This is why famous people have decided to, to simplify even things so much as their wardrobe of what they will put on in the morning so they don't even have to think about it anymore. Steve Jobs did this wearing the same uniform every day to work. Barack Obama did the same thing so he wouldn't have to walk into his closet and choose a suit every morning. Robert Taylor wears the same black consistently because there's so many decisions to be made in a day. Current research suggests that even 30 minutes of a day of listening to somebody nag and complain actually holds the potential within it to create a certain form of brain damage. American kids consume an average of 8 to 10 hours of media per day. Clay Shirky suggests that maybe it's not information overload. Maybe our real problem is filter failure. Maybe we don't know what to put up in front of us in order to make sure that we don't have it all come in. Research is being done all around this area, these kinds of areas as well. Reading resources like the National Journal, ABC News, Time, Cornell University Studies, Edison Research came up with statistics like this. That students who listen to classical music as a filter while they studied math the night before a test on average scored 12% higher on a test the next day. 
take that one to the bank or the report card. That students who listened to slow music while driving on average made 78% less driving errors because of the filter of music they were processing. Or that if you listen to slow, smooth jazz while eating in a restaurant, on average you will consume 175 less calories during that meal if you just put the filter up. Last month we had an eclipse take place. This incredible event, and we were told that if you, you couldn't look straight out, you had to put a filter on. Maybe we need to do the same thing with the information we're taking in in this world. A filter up so that we're not blinded by what's all coming at us. As we walk this semester through the book of Revelation, what the Apostle John is trying to do for us is give us a filter to see the world with a different set of eyes. How to process everything that's coming at us so we can see it differently than everybody else. If you were at Gift this past Sunday night, you heard John preach the story of David and Goliath. And what I heard in his telling of the story when it was all said and done is that David just simply had a different filter on because of his faith and how he saw the world. That he approached a fight with a physical giant with a different realization. He saw a different reality because of his faith. At the end of the day, David walked into that battle knowing that he was the spiritual giant and Goliath the spiritual midget. It wasn't even a contest. And I loved that revelation. Paul says that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of this world. What if the scales for our eyes could be pulled back for a minute? We could look around this room. You could walk across campus today. What if you could see the spiritual battles taking place? If you could see in other people's hearts and maybe even our own, to see the battlefield of, on which this is being waged. If we could see the spiritual warfare taking place. And is that maybe at the end of the day, according to Paul, according to John, according to Jesus, the more real reality? What John offers us in the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, that's his opening words. What he offers us in this is a different filter, a different way of seeing it all. These are your eclipse glasses to see what's really real. And as he gets into this, he does a few things in particular. The apocalypse of Jesus is all about... And he uses, in 404 verses, over 500 plus quotes, echoes, and allusions from the Old Testament. He uses the bigger narrative in order to tell it in a new way. Employing 30 different Old Testament textbook, different books, favoring Exodus, Daniel, Isaiah, Zechariah, Ezekiel. And in the book of Revelation, this is what I figured out this week, 37 different names or descriptions are used of Jesus in, throughout this book. 137 of them take place just in the first three chapters. John's vision is obsessed with describing to us who Jesus really is. It's like he's saying, can you see him now? Can you see him now? Can you see, can you see what I'm seeing? The veil has been pulled back. It's been disclosed. It's been revealed. That's what apocalypse means. And I want to show you the real reality that actually exists. 250 times in the whole book, either the, a different name for Jesus or a description of him is used. That's more than one every other verse. This is one giant extended fascination with the person of Jesus. 
That's what's taking place. N.T. Wright in his commentary on it says it like this, like anyone describing a dream or vision, he must know that what he says is impressionistic. For it appeals not to logic but to the imagination, which has been starved rotten in some parts of our culture and overstimulated in others. We are being asked to imagine. What would it look like if the curtain between heaven and earth were suddenly pulled up? Revealing the Jesus who had been there all along, but whom we had managed either to ignore or to cut down to our own size. And as the first sort of vision happens for John in the book, this is how, what he sees and what he describes. John cha- or Revelation chapter 1 verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And over the next two months, what we're going to do is spend a week looking at each of the letters to each of these churches, unpacking why these. Here's a map that sort of shows where these seven churches are. John is on the island of Patmos, 37 miles off the coast of modern-day Greece, 50 miles from the first place where it's traveling, which would have been Ephesus. And you can see there's a circuitous route that this letter would have been taken to be read in each of these churches. The The names are all listed off probably in the order that a mailman would have delivered them. And then they come back. They also would have been focal points to radiate from there on out to the other churches. There were other churches in Asia Minor. There are others that John even knew better, but these are the ones that get listed. And we know that if he's pulling back to all of these Old Testament references over 500 times, what he's doing is is drawing us back into a bigger story. And this is where numbers and images and visuals start to find their significance. So even seven, this biblical letter, or number of completion, of fullness... These seven churches are seven literal churches, but they're also representative of all the churches of all time and all places. Christ's plan for the redemption of the world through his church in all its completion and fullness. And we're going to unpack that a lot more in the weeks ahead of us. He keeps going. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was, was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. Can your mind begin to paint the picture of what it is that John's seeing? He says over and over again through this book, it's like, it's like, because he can't even find the literal description of what this is. I wanted to find images to be able to show this for you, but man alive on Google Images, Googling like the Jesus of Revelation chapter 1, so many people have these terrible literal interpretations of what this is, not honoring the, the genre and the style in which this is written. End up with a lot of pictures like this, where they're trying to literally show what John is seeing. It's hard to make it really come across. 
And at the end of the day, so much of Revelation's art ends up, and this is a technical word now, cheesy. A paintbrush has a hard time doing this justice. John's word had a hard enough time doing this justice. Choosing even the genre of apocalyptic literature just to expand the horizons of how vivid this imagery could become was necessary. And so we can't look at this all the time through this literalistic lens. This is an invitation into a love story with Jesus. And when love stories get written in the Bible, they're usually employing poetry. Paint in your mind's picture now the woman that Solomon's describing in Song of Songs, chapter 4. See if you can do the physical, literal interpretation. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn. Coming up from the washing, each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like halves of a pomegranate. Yeah, baby. (laughs) Your neck is like the Tower of David built with courses of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two... Okay, we'll quit there. Can you understand, like, this is not a very good-looking woman if you're describing this literally, and you're painting this image in your head. And we're not supposed to do the same thing in the Revelation either. So much of the Old Testament is poetry. It allows our imaginations and our hearts and our emotions to get engaged. It's not about logic. It's about imagination. And our faith is so much about that, the ability to see beyond what is currently only in front of us, to see the real battles at place in this world. That's what he wants us to see. Bruce Metzger in his commentary on this passage says it like this. The revelation doesn't mean what it says, it means what it means. And I love that description. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet. And with a golden sash around his chest, the hair on his head was white like wool, white as snow. And here's the list as it keeps going. Back to those verses now. And can you see all the different pieces, the descriptors of what's taking place here? He walks among the lampstands. This is high priestly language from the Old Testament. The high priest kept the lamps. He trimmed the wicks. He filled them with oil. He maintained them. He cared for them so that they would burn 24-7 in the temple. It says Jesus is walking among the lampstands. He is there. He is present. He is maintaining. He is discipling. He is disciplining. He is pruning his church. He's maintaining it. He's making sure that its lamp will never go out in the world regardless of what's happening. And he wears the robe like a high priest because he is the high priestly one. And he's got a sash like like an ancient king would have to mark who he is, the king of kings and the lord of lords. And he has white hair, just like it's described in the book of Daniel, where the Ancient of Days is given his picture. And in Revelation, we see the language in the Old Testament that was always used to describe God, now describes Jesus himself. And the lines start to blur between this reigning, almighty Yahweh God and the picture now that we see of Jesus, who sits with them and occupies the throne in heaven. And his eyes, they're like blazing fire. They pierce through. They can see through all things. Our eyes are the mirror of the soul. And his eyes penetrate us. And they refine us like fire. 
And his feet are like bronze. Not like the statue that's depicted in the book of Daniel and these feet that can be broken and can't stand sturdy. His feet will stand for all time and his kingdom will never fail. It's not like the ones of this world. It's entirely different. Seven angels and he assigns heavenly beings to guard over his people and his church and to watch them. And he tells us in verse 20 what that is. And his voice, and this is my favorite descriptor, his voice you have to turn around to see it. Jesus' voice, when he speaks, things change. His voice is his most powerful weapon. It is his identifier. It sounds like rushing waters, like standing beside a waterfall of continuous thunder, of decibels just reverberating through our body. And out of his mouth, a sharp double-edged sword, not a long one. This is the Roman sword that they would have used. It was almost shaped like a tongue. It was short. It was for close hand-to-hand combat. That when Jesus confronts us with his words and, and works his way into our lives, it's not at a distance. It's deep and it's intimate and it's hand-to-hand. It's, it's mouth-to-heart combat. And that's how he engages us. That's how he battles us. That's how he wins for us. And all the while, his face is shining like the sun. And so John sees all this and he's employing this. It, it's, like, it, it, it's, it's, it's like, and he's drawing from everything he can to try to wrap our minds and imaginations around what it is that he's seeing. And when I saw this, he said, I fell at his feet as though dead, that he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. These are some of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Write, therefore, what you've seen, what is now, and what will yet take place. Because this book collapses those things together. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And this is where he finds his home. And he's speaking against the beliefs of what everybody in that culture would have had. In the center here depicted is the ancient Greek goddess Hecate. Hecate, a Greek mythological goddess of magic, witchcraft, sorcery, the night, the moon, the darts, ghosts, and necromancy. She's often shown holding two torches, daggers, a snake, and holding keys. She was the goddess of the crossroads and entranceways and believed to hold the keys that controlled the entrance to the underworld into Hades. Against this cultural knowledge and backdrop, Jesus has to tell them, it's not, it's not Hakati who holds the keys to death in Hades. It is I. I have gone in. I have taken it. I am the one. And you're going to see the introduction of polemical language from Jesus throughout this book. He speaks about economics. He speaks about politics. He speaks about social order. He talks about national boundaries. He talks about all the things that are coming under his control. In the ancient world, everybody had a God for every different thing. And this one God reigns over all of them. If you remember from last week, I told you the two primary commands that take place throughout this book are this. Over and over and over again. Do not be afraid and look. Open your eyes and see you do not have to be afraid. See the realities for what they really are. Let me pull the curtain of reality back for you. Let me show you how this world really works. Let me show you who's really in control of all of it. Do not be afraid. There is not one of us here who knows what tomorrow holds. Dictators with hands over buttons of bombs. Social orders and economies that can change in the blink of an eye. 
Superpowers throughout this world have come and gone. Nobody here knows who holds tomorrow or what tomorrow holds, but we know who holds tomorrow, and that's the thing. Do not be afraid. In the middle of persecution, in the middle of suffering, it keeps echoing back. Do not be afraid. I was at the beginning, and I'll be there at the end. I am the living one, and even death can't touch me, Jesus said. I was dead, but now look. Look at the reality that I've created because of what I've done. Sin has taken so many human lives. Sin has caused so much pain. Sin has started so many wars. Sin has been this mass producer of injustice and hatred and anger and bigotry and racism and destruction of lives. But now look at the new reality that's breaking in. I am alive forever and ever, and I, I hold the keys of death and Hades. You see what I mean when John says, I see the voice, because this voice does stuff. It's why it sounds like rushing waters. It's why it's a sharp, double-edged sword. Jesus only has one weapon in this depiction, and it's his mouth. All he has to do is speak. And as followers of him, this is our greatest weapon in the world. We can recreate, we can build up lives by speaking, being made in his image, being given his kingdom. We speak new realities. We speak life over people. We speak encouragement. We speak wisdom. We speak, we imagine. We imagine the world as it could be when this rain continues to come in. We speak and we teach and we learn And our imagination gets revitalized in the midst of all of this. For this voice has been speaking for a long time. He was there at the beginning. He will be there at the end. Everything you have ever feared, everything you have ever struggled with, his voice will own all of it. And God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered in one place, let the dry ground appear. And God said, let the ground produce vegetation. God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. And then God said, let us make human beings in our image and in our likeness. And then that voice that spoke became flesh and it got even closer. It moved into the neighborhood and it walked and it suffered among us and with us. And he was there at the beginning and he'll be there at the end. Paul says it about him like this, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. In him you are held together. Your first day and your last day. The things you've seen and the things you can't imagine. The parts you're conscious of and the things that you don't even know. Every breath you've taken and every one that you long to still take. Do not be afraid. I'm the first and I'm the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and now, now look. Open your eyes and look. 
For this is your new reality. I am alive forever and ever. And I, I hold the keys of death and Hades. Father God, you are great and your love endures forever. The mountains and the ocean depths are yours. The far stars are yours. And God, we want to tell you this morning again, our life is yours. You have purchased it. You have redeemed it. You have bought it back and we are yours. And allow us to live into the new reality that has been created for us in the work of Christ and in the words that are spoken throughout this book. May they be our truer reality, not because of us, but because of you. And because your love is so big that it's still consuming more of us. Take our thoughts, take our actions, take our play, take our words, take our imagination. And Father, bring them under your Lordship. And now lift our voices and receive our praise. Peel back the scales from our eyes, maybe to see you new, bigger than we ever knew you before. Receive our praise, for you are the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the ruler of the kings of the earth. This is you. We worship you. We please stand to sing.